Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Imagine a married man who goes online specifically looking to start an affair. What's his story? How does he feel about his marriage? Why is he looking to cheat? Will he actually end up having an affair? And if so, what will that mean for his relationship? In thinking about these questions, there's a good chance that you pictured a guy who is profoundly unhappy in his marriage and is looking for an exit from a relationship that's inevitably going to end. While that does reflect reality for some men seeking affairs, the story is more complicated. Different people cheat for different reasons, and sometimes even people in very happy marriages and relationships commit infidelity. And infidelity doesn't always mean the end of a relationship. In fact, some studies suggest that following an affair, as few as one in five people break up as a direct result of it. So let's talk about the complex world of affairs. I recently released a few episodes of the show looking at women who have affairs, so we're going to focus more on men today. And specifically, we're going to look at a new study of Ashley Madison users, which is a website that facilitates affairs and has a mostly male audience. We're going to discuss what this study tells us about the motivations behind infidelity and the outcomes of having an affair, including whether people regret the experience or are glad that they did it. My guest today is Dr. Dylan Selterman, a social personality psychologist and an associate teaching professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. He studies romantic attraction, dating, dreaming, morality and ethics, and political psychology. Dylan is also a TEDx speaker and has written for the Washington Post, National Geographic, and Psychology Today. Dylan co-hosts a podcast called A Bit More Complicated. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Hi, Dylan, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me once again. So the last time you were here, we recorded two episodes. One of them was on sex dreams, which is a topic that I love. And the other was on infidelity, a topic that has so many interesting facets to explore. You had a new study that just came out that furthers our understanding of infidelity. So let's talk about that. As a starting point, tell us a little bit about who you surveyed. So this was a study of Ashley Madison users. So what is Ashley Madison? Yeah, Ashley Madison is a website slash application that basically facilitates affairs for people who are married. So in a sense, it's kind of like a traditional dating app, but it's geared toward people who are in committed partnerships. So it's a dating app for people who are in relationships who want to have additional partners, maybe with or without their partner's knowledge. That's an interesting question we actually asked our participants about was, you know, does your partner know about this? And do you have an open relationship of some kind? And one of the things we found is that we we got lots of conflicting answers 
to those questions about monogamy. And I guess this kind of underscores how tricky monogamy is. So about half of participants said they had an agreement to be exclusive with their partners or spouses. But based on that, you'd think the other half would have some kind of open relationship. But in response to that question, it was only about 15% or less. So the majority of participants reported that they had cheated on their partners, but about 40% so they didn't even know if their partners had cheated on them. And so all of this, I think, likely reflects just poor communication in relationships. Yeah, and that was actually going to be one of my questions because Hugh and I recently published a book chapter on infidelity, and that was specifically on infidelity in same-sex relationships. And we found that you know, just trying to describe like what is the prevalence of infidelity was a really hard thing to do because so much of the research conflates consensual non-monogamy with non-consensual non-monogamy. So a lot of researchers have kind of made this assumption that if you're having sex with anybody other than your spouse or primary partner, that it's necessarily cheating. So in so much of this work, that open relationship versus infidelity thing has not really been clearly distinguished at all. It's a big problem in a lot of the literature out there. So I appreciate that you did ask people about, you know, what was the nature of their relationship. But as you point out, like people don't necessarily give consistent answers on this. You know, I, I've seen this in other research as well, where people have been asked in studies about consensual non-monogamy, whether they're actually in an open relationship. And when you interview both partners separately, sometimes they have totally different understandings of what that relationship is. Like one thinks it's open and the other doesn't. So is this just a communication issue or you know what's going on there? Could be communication issues or misunderstanding. I mean, that's what we see in some of the other studies, like you said, when you get both people's responses. It could also be that people feel like they have a different understanding of what it means to have an exclusive or open relationship. So some people might think, as you've talked about before in this podcast, that cheating is only cheating if you're having sex, but if you're kissing someone a little bit, that's okay. But then the other partner might have a different view. Yeah, and now that also has me thinking about other research, looking at what counts as infidelity and how people have different standards for themselves versus their partner. And they're more likely to judge something as being infidelity if their partner engages in it, but less likely when they themselves do it. So there might be a bit of kind of motivated reasoning here where people are trying to justify things that they're doing that seem okay for them, but when their partner does it, that's a totally different story. So yeah, it all gets to the fact that infidelity is this really complicated topic to study. And that's my next question for you, which is how, you know, at the beginning of your paper, you talk about how the literature on monogamy and infidelity is more complex than people might assume. You know, most people, if you survey them, say that they want a monogamous relationship, but then a huge number of them end up cheating. And the common narrative we hear in the popular media is that infidelity is prompted by being unhappy in the relationship and that infidelity is this thing that inevitably pushes people to the brink. But the story's more complex. So tell us a little bit about what the previous research has found in terms of infidelity being this kind of complicated thing. 
I mean, you said it. A lot of studies have found, for example, that if you ask people how satisfied or committed they are, how much they love their partners, that for those people who say they are not very highly satisfied or they're not really loving their partners that much, they're more likely to cheat. On the other hand, some studies have found that a high percentage of people say they they love their partners and they're happy and they're satisfied and they're cheating anyway. So that was kind of in the back of our minds throughout a lot of this and was a driving force behind some of the other work that I talked to you about on this podcast, trying to figure out the different motivations for people to cheat. And in this study, the one on Ashley Madison users, we did not find a lot of action here with the traditional measures of relationship quality. So we asked participants, how satisfied are you? How much do you love your partner? How committed are you? And that did not predict whether or not they actually went ahead and had an affair. It also did not predict how satisfied they felt with the affairs. It did not predict regret for the affair. And so I think some of the results, the null findings in our study kind of challenge some of the conventional wisdom about whether infidelity is actually linked with relationship quality. And we, we don't really find evidence for that here. Yeah, and this is something I often get a lot of pushback <laughs> for when I say this point, which is that people who are in happy relationships sometimes cheat. And the response that some people have to that is that, well, if you were happy in the relationship, then you wouldn't cheat. But again, this is a complicated thing. You can love your partner, you can be very happy and content with the relationship in multiple ways, but there might be other factors that prompt seeking out an affair. And we're going to get into some of the motives a little bit later, but you know, infidelity is this thing that has multiple causes. It's not this monolithic phenomenon where you can say everybody cheats for this reason and all affairs have the same effect. It's a very difficult thing to study in terms of coming up with a very simple narrative about it. Now, I think we can assume that most people who are on a website like Ashley Madison are looking for an affair based on the way that you described the nature of the site. But looking for an affair and having one are two different things, right? Because you might be looking for it, but you might not be able to find somebody who meets the standard that you're looking for or somebody who's interested. So how many of the people in your sample actually had affairs? Right. So at the beginning of the study, it was only a small minority of folks that actually had an affair. And I guess we could look at the specific behavior. So at the beginning, it was about 20% that were currently communicating with someone. Between 10 and 20% actually met in person and about 20% having sex. And by the end of the study, it was a little bit higher. So looking about 5 to 10% more than those numbers. So about 30% have having sex. Small percentage said they fell in love. That's you know less than 10%. Uh, but this is only across the span of a few months that we were asking people these questions. So the numbers would probably be a lot higher than that if we surveyed them for longer. But still, at some point, you know, significant proportion of people do find an affair. And most participants in our study said they had a history of cheating on their partner even before signing up. So these are people who are mostly have had affairs before and are seeking more affairs. Yeah, so it sounds like the website isn't something for first-time affairs or the thing that like pushes people to actually have an affair. These are probably people who were 
having some experience with this beforehand. And then this website, this app is something that just facilitates the behavior in the future. But so as you were describing that, it sounds like you did a longitudinal study with users. So you were following people for a period of months and then just sending them surveys about what their experiences with the app or website are like. Yeah, we asked mostly psychological questions and also their experiences with their affairs specifically. We didn't ask necessarily about the experience using the app, but we did ask people, for example, what kinds of others are you meeting here and do you like them and are you satisfied with them? And that was another thing that we expected to find because other studies have shown that the more satisfied people are in their relationships, the less attractive they think other people are compared to their partner or spouse. But we didn't find that either. So this is called derogation of alternatives. And it's, again, another finding that folks have reported in our field, but we didn't find evidence for that in our study. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that point up because now it has me thinking about, again, how affairs are complex because somebody might go out and have an affair, meet somebody else, but then realize that they're not going to find somebody who's better than their current partner in certain ways. And so it could actually, in that sense, maybe strengthen the primary relationship in the sense of somebody saying, all right, well, maybe that was fun in terms of, you know, having sex with somebody else or, you know, having this opportunity to connect, but I still love my partner and I'm not going to find a replacement for them. So again, infidelity (laughs) can have different effects on different people, depending on the situation. So for people who were looking for affair partners in your study, I think you mentioned this a little bit, you know, in terms of what their primary relationship looked like, they didn't necessarily seem like they were inherently distressed. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? And also, you know, what were people looking for? You know, why were they seeking an affair in the first place? Yeah. So good that you brought that up and our measures of relationship quality looked pretty decent, you know, relative to what we would expect to see for a group of people looking to have affairs. The one thing that stood out was sexual dissatisfaction. So sexual dissatisfaction scores were the highest relative to the other variables here. And a lot of people, I think it was about 50% in our study said they weren't having sex at all with their partners or spouses. So they're just a lot of dead bedrooms. And this seemed to be the standout main motivation for people to have affairs. They just they weren't having sex with their partners and they wanted to have sex. And as far as other motivations to have affairs, we saw that some people wanted to basically boost their independence or autonomy, this kind of feeling of self-esteem, so to speak. Although we didn't ask specifically about self-esteem and the motivations, we did look at other measures of well-being. And in this case, those were the main motivations, sexual dissatisfaction and wanting to have more autonomy or more independence. Yeah, and that makes total sense based on the broader literature. A lot of people are in sexless relationships. I think the statistic is about, if you look at marriages specifically, somewhere around one in seven people who are married in the United States today report that they basically have a non-existent sex life. And when you survey those people specifically, you know, a lot of them want to find ways to deal with this, right? Because they want sex, but their partner doesn't. And so infidelity is one of the common motives for coping with a sexless relationship, because these people will often say, 
I really love my partner. They're the perfect spouse in every way. It's just that we don't have a sex life. And so they want to find some way to stay together. And so infidelity is sometimes the way that they do that. That's a whole other issue in terms of, you know, the moralistic concerns and relationship agreements that are being broken there and communication. And is there another way to deal with this? You know, but that's a whole other podcast episode. You know, so what you mentioned here is that a lot of people are sexually dissatisfied, but a lot of them are also just seeking independence and autonomy. And it's kind of about that sense of self. And that goes back to our earlier discussion about, you know, how people can be in a happy relationship, but they're cheating for some other reason. And it's often having to do with the self and feeling like you don't have that independence or autonomy anymore. And it's wanting to reassert that or reclaim that in some way. Or sometimes it's just about wanting a self-esteem boost or just wanting to explore what a different path might be like. You know, you might be very happy and content in your current path, but people engage in a lot of what we call counterfactual thinking in psychology, right? Where they're thinking about what are the alternatives? Like, what would my life have been like if I would have, you know, gone with my high school sweetheart instead of, you know, uh, following a different path there? So, you know, that's part of what motivates affairs too, is kind of like, what could my life have been if I would have explored something different? That doesn't necessarily mean that exploring that path is going to take you someplace that you'd rather be, but it's just people sometimes want to have that kind of like need for closure to explore those different paths and alternatives. Yeah, just to double click on that, in terms of the specific motivations to have affairs, we found, for example, that the dyadic motivations, so feeling lack of love, low commitment, sexual dissatisfaction, anger, those are all associated with worse relationship quality. But autonomy as a motivation for affairs was positively associated with relationship quality. So the happier people were in their relationships, the more they felt this autonomy motivation. So it kind of underscores all that you just said. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's a kind of key takeaway from this is that in relationships, it's really important to cultivate your own and your partner's sense of autonomy. And I think this is where a lot of the struggle around monogamy and long-term relationships happens is that the way that we think about relationships is often in this kind of very possessive sense. And that tends to restrict and reduce autonomy and independence in the relationship. And then that can be the thing that might push people to seek affairs or to become dissatisfied in the relationship. And so finding a way to balance that, you know, how are we together and have our time, but also, you know, have that own sense of self, autonomy, independence is important as well. And it's a tricky thing to really try and balance. Now, I recently did an episode on women's experiences with infidelity and we focused on heterosexual women who are married or in long-term relationships, but were having an affair. And it was uncommon for these women to report regret. They seemed to be glad to have had the experience. And this led some of my listeners to ask, well, is it the same for men? So I think it's important to talk about men's affairs too. So your sample consisted mostly of men. So let's answer that question. For those who had affairs, how did they feel about the experience? Yeah, great question. Yeah, our, our sample was definitely overwhelmingly comprised of men and ratings for the affair satisfaction. So how satisfied they felt emotionally and sexually were pretty high. 
and feelings of regret were pretty low. And this is just a normative thing across the whole sample. So it does seem like they felt pretty good about their affairs. And this did not seem to be changed significantly based on things like the quality of their relationship or other types of individual differences. We also asked them about things like sociosexuality. So this is the extent to which people associate sex with love, and that didn't make a difference either. It just seemed in a normative sense, satisfaction was high and regret was low. Yeah, that has me wondering about, you know, my social psychologist is coming out again. Um, I'm thinking about cognitive dissonance here and thinking about the amount of time and effort and work that people might put into having an affair. I know that sometimes it's a thing that just spontaneously happens. It was unexpected. And you've found this in some of your other research that sometimes people cheat for these very opportunistic reasons, right? Maybe they're on a business trip and they get drunk at the bar and they meet someone and then something happens, right? But a lot of affairs are really intentional, right? There's a lot of work and effort that goes into it and screening and finding the right partner and all of that. And when you're putting so much effort into something that is extraordinarily risky, right? Because this could be the thing that blows up the relationship that might lead us to kind of reevaluate or think about it in a different way, right? Because if you put a lot of effort into something and it's not really that satisfying, that creates this dissonance, you know, this feeling of discomfort. And we have to find a way to relieve that discomfort. And oftentimes we do that by adjusting our attitudes. And so we might justify the effort we put into seeking an affair by then evaluating it more positively. So I don't know, what do you think? Cognitive dissonance has something to do with affairs? That's not something we were able to test in this study, but I like the idea. And certainly moral consistency is something that is of interest in not just relationships and infidelity, but in a lot of areas of life and figuring out the ways in which people kind of betray their own ethics and then somehow are fine with it. We also did include some questions about moral concerns, but those things didn't make it into the final version of our published study because the, the scales we used were not very statistically reliable. Although I do encourage researchers, and I myself am interested to follow up on this with some newer and, and better measures of moral concerns. It would be interesting to see if, for example, people's moral concerns about loyalty or purity were in some way associated with those feelings of regret or satisfaction after affairs. And maybe there is a, an association there that would help explain this kind of dissonance that you're describing. But it is interesting, again, in a normative sense that most people, like you said, they think infidelity is morally wrong, and yet they have affairs and feel fine with it. <laughs> Right? I mean, yeah. So I, I think that does go back to the cognitive dissonance thing. And I, I think this moral idea that you bring up is really important in this consideration because people do want to see themselves as moral or just or right in, in certain ways, right? And if you engage in a behavior that threatens your sense of self as being a moral or just or right person, you need to find some way to justify that. And so that might be in terms of 
saying that it was okay for me to have this affair. And, you know, that goes back to what we discussed earlier regarding people having these sort of shifting standards of behavior, like what is okay for me versus what is okay for my partner. So you can find a way to rationalize it for yourself, but people wouldn't give the same grace to their partner if they were engaging in the same behavior. Yeah. So what comes after an affair? Do people tend to break up or do they stay together? And what predicts whether an affair becomes the breaking point for a relationship? So one of the things we looked at was whether relationship quality or the rate of breakups, for example, would increase or relationship quality would decrease as a result of having an affair, but we didn't find that. Instead, what we found was that the motivations for people to have affairs, that's really where the action was. So when people were motivated to have affairs specifically because they felt a lack of love or some kind of situational factor, like we mentioned, maybe you're on a business trip and get drunk at a bar or something, those two were associated with staying together across the time that participants were in our study. On the other hand, sexual dissatisfaction was associated more with breaking up. So it seems like the initial motivation to have the affair is just as important, if not more important, than the affair itself in terms of whether or not people stay together. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point, especially in talking about things like somebody who has cheated, are they likely to cheat again? You know, we often hear that once a cheater, always a cheater, right? But you need to understand the reasons why people are cheating because that's what's going to give you the most insight into how it's going to affect the relationship over the long term and then also what they're likely to do in future or subsequent relationships because sometimes cheating is this very situational thing. Sometimes it's more dispositional, has to do with your personality. Sometimes it's very relational, has to do with the circumstances of that particular relationship. And maybe if you were in a different relationship, you wouldn't be inclined to cheat. So yeah, understanding those reasons, motivations, I think is really important, especially for people who do sexual and relationship therapy. Because you know, if you treat all affairs the same way, I think you might be doing a disservice to your clients because they're often motivated by these very different reasons. So when it comes to resolving infidelity and preventing future infidelity in a relationship, you have to look at what was the root cause in that particular idiosyncratic circumstance. Exactly. This is, I think, one of the key take-home points from some of the studies that I've been involved in. As you said before, affairs are not one big monolith. And I think, I mean, some clinicians and, and clinical psychologists have reached out to me and said, you know, they, they really want to inform their practice based on the research. And this idea is definitely influencing the way that they communicate with their clients, especially in the context of couples therapy, about how they move beyond and resolve the pain of being cheated on. And even putting aside the diversity of motivations people have for affairs, Monogamy is really hard. It's really freaking <laughs> hard for people. And I think one of the other take-home points from this line of research is that we shouldn't take that for granted. We shouldn't say to ourselves, oh, I have a partner, we're monogamous now, end of story. You know, and, and some of your other guests have talked about this, and I know other experts in the fields have talked about this, the idea that monogamy takes a lot of work, and it can work for people, but you have to put effort into it, and it requires a kind of constant communication about your needs and your partner's needs. And if infidelity happens, so, you know, sometimes that is the end, 
because of underlying motivations and other factors. But it doesn't have to be. It, do, it doesn't have to be the thing that dooms your relationship, especially if you have a lifelong partnership with someone. One instance of infidelity need not be the thing that completely destroys the life that you've built together. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you for the big takeaways from your research, and I think you beautifully summarized them right there. And, you know, just to underscore that point about monogamy, it can work. It works for a lot of people, but you're absolutely right that it's also very difficult. You know, I like to think of monogamy as something that if that's what you want to pursue, that you're not just going to establish it, but you're going to maintain it. And you have to figure out a way to keep that working for you and for your partner. And it takes a lot of effort to do that, but it takes a lot of effort to do any kind of relationship. You know, if you're in an open or poly relationship, like that's just as much, if not more effort, because if you're managing multiple relationships, like that's just more, you know, irons in the fire that you have to tend to. And so, you know, all relationships are work and nothing is, is easy. So I think that's just sort of the mindset that we have to go into our relationships with is we need to have what we call a growth mindset where we have to realize we're going to need to grow and work together to make this relationship work for the long term. You know, I like talking about implicit theories of relationships. You know, some people are more growth-oriented, but other people have what we call kind of this destiny mindset for relationships, where they think that a relationship is either destined to work or it won't. And for people who have that more destiny-oriented mindset, they tend to, like, jump ship faster in their relationships because they're like, well, I got this red flag or warning sign, this relationship can't work, so I'm just going to leave before I even give it a chance. By contrast, people who have that growth mindset, you know, yes, you can see that there are problems that are going to arise, but you're motivated to find ways to work through them. So, so much of our relationships and whether they last has to do with that initial mindset you come into the relationship with. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one last question for you, which is where you think research on infidelity needs to go next. So what questions have yet to be answered or what do you think needs further study in this area of research? Well, one of the things that we wrote about in this paper was concerning whether the people who use Ashley Madison, you know, how representative are they relative to the broader population of cheaters? So that that's kind of a burning question in my mind is just how similar or different people who use an app like Ashley Madison relative to others who have affairs. And the truth is we don't know yet. I mean, some people might speculate and say these are very very different people. I would say, sure, that's a possibility, but we don't really know until we have the data. And I tend to think, you know, based on what we know from other studies, that this population is not that far off from others. I mean, demographically, they are older, and the people we get in a lot of studies are sometimes young adults and dating relationships, and these are older married men. So that demographic difference is there. But psychologically, I'm not convinced yet. As for other things that I'm really curious about, like I said before, we were trying to measure moral concerns to see what kind of predictive validity those would have, but we ended up not publishing that piece of the study based on just statistical anomalies. So I would love to follow up on that. I would love to know what kinds of moral concerns people have predict their 
behaviors in relationships that are related to these thorny ethical issues like cheating and other types of relationship outcomes based on cheating. That would be something I would love to see more work on in the literature. Yeah, well, we can't wait to see where your research goes because there's still so much to explore in this area. And I'm also glad you brought up the point about the demographics of this particular sample, the user base of Ashley Madison. You know, if you're talking about more middle-aged men who have been in these long-term relationships, you know, it might be different from if you were studying, say, college students in dating relationships in terms of like what motivates them to cheat. You know, these are very different populations in a lot of ways. So I think we do need more work definitely that explores all of these factors that you've been talking about in some different segments of the population to see to what degree they're similar or different. I just wanted to add one more thing, just a shout out to my awesome collaborators, Sam Joel and Victoria Dale. Uh, Sam in particular for helping to think through some of these ideas initially and for running analyses. Uh, I couldn't have done it without them. Yeah, it always takes a village when it comes to research. And I love Samantha Joel. She was a previous guest on the podcast way back when. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would encourage people to go check it out because she's done some amazing research. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Dylan. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Selter Mosby. And I have a column on psychology today called The Resistance Hypothesis. And I have a podcast I co-host with Manny Galvan called A Bit More Complicated. And I will be sure to include links to all of those things in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time, Dylan. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.